Are either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Past the July 4th holiday, so who boy, summer movie season in full swing. And we've got a batch to look at this week. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. We're from MadWolf.com. Let's start scary in theaters this week. The Lamberts must go deeper into the further than ever before to put their demons to rest once and for all. This is the latest in the Insidious franchise, Insidious the Red Door. Our family has been through a lot together. You told me that when I was 10. I was in a coma. But I don't remember being sick. We're ready to forget. 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 Ever since then, I see crazy stuff in my dreams. The further you travel, the riskier the journey becomes. If you're counting, and we did, this is number five (laughs) in the franchise, going back to 2010 was the original Insidious. And if you remember, it was a good, it was another good slice of PG-13 horror. Yeah, it was a great And I know we talk about that a lot. We're not big fans because that has some shortcomings, at least for us. We're big fans of horror. But that was a good one. And then they've since done, um, they they did chapter two and three. And then the last one, chapter four, was a prequel. And it was just Lynn Shay, basically. Mm-hmm. And now they're back to the original family for number five. And the original cast comes back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it catches up nine years later is when they we get the introduction, when um, the older boy, Dalton, who's played again by Tim Simpkins, who we had forgotten was just in The Whale. Yeah. He looks totally different. Yeah, he He's does. got the long hair now. Yeah, dark hair, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he is going off to college. And things have changed in the family uh, the the couple has split up. Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne they've split up. And Patrick Wilson is directing this yep. one, by the His way. Debut His debut is director. His debut. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that was part of the deal to get him come back to do the film. I don't know that. Should have asked Schlocketeer that maybe if that was part <laughs> of the deal. But yeah, this is Patrick Wilson's debut as a director, and he's back as one of the stars as well. But actually, a lot of the the narrative shifts to the college because once Dalton goes there. Then we start to see how this, um, these demons, these hauntings, this this history of astral projection in the family sort of follows him there as he makes a new friend. His well, it turns out to be his, his first roommate when he gets uh, to college. Chris, who's a female Chris, there was kind of a mix-up, uh, played by uh, Sinclair Daniel. And so she's his roommate there for a little while. And they become fast friends, and she gets drawn into it as well as we see how he is dealing with the fact that he's being affected by these and he can leave his body with these astral projections, and it all connects back to a family history. It's it's an interesting, you know, the, the split because we do spend, you know, a good amount of time also back at the ranch, right, with Josh, with the dad, Patrick Wilson's character. So there's a B story going on there, and you know eventually that the father and son, that their stories are going to have to come back together, which mm-hmm. reflects the bigger picture of, of the two of them as father and son sort of being estranged from each other. You know, the first movie was so, it really was inspired. It was, it was fascinating, mainly once they took you to the further. Like that was, the, you know, visually so nutty. It was such a fascinating 
bunch of sort of unclear lunacy. It was so sinister. And it gave you some some cool looks at that Darth Maul type yeah. type demon. Very, and he's he's back a little bit in this one. But that was one of the things I agree with you about the first one. Yeah, and but you know this one, especially when they are on campus, it just doesn't have. It doesn't have any of that spookiness. It feels, you know, and it's the fifth installment. It's going to feel, okay, I've seen this before. One of the things I did like about the campus setting, he's uh, Dalton is there as an art student. Mm-hmm. And so when it gets into his his drawings and his, he's, he's encouraged by his instructor to dig deep into his subconscious. And so he, of course, ends up drawing all these really weird and dark works yeah. and some of it reminded me of some of the great paintings from the night gallery and you know i love night, ga- <laughs> night, night gallery some of them were creepy yeah especially with the guy you know that the, the guy i don't want to spoil too much but there's a guy and a big you know hatchet type of thing and uh they have to dig into the the history of why he's being haunted by these visions but i did like some of that but you're right when the fifth installment you gotta go someplace new and the further also gives it an organic way to use the type of, of horror devices that I'm not a big fan of when you can see something, usually it's in the trailer, something that looks very scary, and then you get to the movie and, oh, and they just wake up and it's all gone. Well, this has, a, it doesn't seem like such a cheat when you're right. dealing with the Astral history. projection, right. Yeah, that, that, exactly, yeah, exactly. And some of that is effective, but look, it, it's PG-13 horror. We've been down that road. You know pretty much what you're going to get. You're going to get jump scares and some music stabs and some fake outs and and some of them as far as Patrick Wilson's directing I, I don't think it's bad but it's oh, it's no. not great I mean some of the some of the jump scares are pretty clearly telegraphed mm-hmm. a couple maybe lead you somewhere that isn't telegraphed so all in all fine yeah I mean I thought there were there were some nice moments where something's there and then it's not where mm-hmm. they it's not a jump scare where right it's just sort of a you know it's a haunting sort of the way an image kind of haunts the screen and if you're not paying attention you probably wouldn't notice it i liked a lot of that mm-hmm. it's fine yeah, it's e- fine exactly especially if and some people are like this your tastes run to not too scary i mean some people don't want to go beyond that type of it and that's fine it is and, funny to me because you know the original uh, was scary. Mm-hmm. It was a scary I movie. Yeah. I agree. Um, and they managed, James Wan directed and, and Lee Wan L wrote, of course, they had written and directed Saw, which is for a lot of people like a touchstone in horror, the quite the opposite of this, of, of Insidious. So mm-hmm. I remember thinking how fascinating was it those same filmmakers could go and make something so imaginative and so, and make a PG-13 movie that was genuinely frightening. And um, and then, it, you know, they haven't been able to recapture that. And certainly in the fifth installment, they won't. Of course, um, James Wan, he produces this time. But Lee Wanell still is credited with... Um, a writing, as, he's, got, he's got a writing credit. Yeah. And also the producers, uh, not just those guys, Oren Pelly yeah. is this as a producer. There's a whole big yeah. row here yeah. of people involved. But yeah, it's perfectly fine. I, I think for people that, again, that lean toward this as the type of horror they like, it's going to fit the bill. I, I, I don't think it's anywhere close to the first one, which is still up there. We, we mentioned it many times as far as PG-13 horror. I mean, The Ring is still probably up yeah. there at the very top. But Insidious is pretty darn yes, good. I agree. Pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. And um, it's certainly better than the last one, uh, the, the the last yeah, key, which last was number four. So, you know, if this ends up being the final one, and we'll know by the box office, uh, it seems like a good wrap up uh, as far as the family story. They yeah. can they can always, if they're motivated enough, they can always find somewhere else to go. But I, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if this is maybe the end of this. Maybe the Patrick Wilson Rose Byrne won't be involved anymore if they do take it on. But you never know. You never know. You never know. It's it's totally fine. And this is Insidious the Red Door.
How about a new comedy in theaters? This one follows four Chinese-American friends as they bond and discover the truth of what it means to know and love who you are while they travel through China in search of one of their birth mothers. It's Joyride. Best friend strip. This is going to be iconic. You would like that? You do understand this is a work trip for me. Audrey, I got you. Look at me. You're thinking about a dick. Damn it, you're right. Y'all calling me crazy. Let's just be adults. Are you horny? Sex isn't shameful. It's beautiful. Like the noises. Show them. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. I'm not racist. You don't like boba and you never fucked an Asian guy. Damn, still? When I masturbate, I sometimes fantasize about Splinter. He's Asian. He's a rat. He's a good father. So this is director and co-writer Adele Lim. She wrote Crazy Rich Asians. Mm -hmm. She was involved in Riot and the Last Dragon. Mm -hmm. Directed a lot of TV. Yep. And now here for a comedy. Now this one, this we just talked about PG-13 horror. This is R-rated comedy, and the R is in great big red neon letters, and it stands for raunchy. Be warned. If you don't like raunchy, stay away from this. But if you like raunchy and funny... Come on in. That's right. That's right. Yeah, this movie makes uh, the Jennifer Lawrence film from a couple of weeks ago <laughs> seem quite tame comparatively. <laughs> Essentially, it's a road trip. It's the blueprint of a road trip film. It's They're they're not really road tripping. They're globe trotting. Right. But it's the same thing. It's like, you know, four friends together. Think, you know, uh, The Hangover. Four friends together, uh, varying degrees of dorkiness, and they get themselves into uh, insane hijinks that could never possibly happen. And as the film progresses, the hijinks become even more and more and more ludicrous. And that's fine because that's not the point. And you don't, generally speaking, I mean, you you are very tough on the road trip formula because it's so often it's just an excuse to string together like skits. Exactly, yeah. We'll just throw them together. Oh, they're on the road so they can move to right. a, a, a hot dog eating contest <laughs> and then a beer chugging contest down the road. That's what we'll do. Uh, it's it's that, an easy it's an easy cop out. Right. Uh, but the truth is that is more or less what this film is because I think the the thing is that they've taken what is an almost exclusively um masculine format for a film and they've used it so smartly in the way that it's written to just upend your expectations and every stereotype. Well, now, that's st- what elevates it then. Yes. Oh, yeah. exactly. It's so smart mm-hmm. and it's very um I mean, it's uh, the performances are great. The, the comedic performances are really quite quite solid. But one of the things that I love about it is uh, that it it sort of really alters expectations and stereotypes in film about women generally, but Asian women specifically. And then the other thing that I really admire about it is that it it, it doesn't do it in a way like it's not catering to a white audience. It just isn't. It's very much, uh, it's an internal conversation that four Asian women are having about, about you know, and there are microaggressions and there are very aggressive aggressions and there's, you know, they're, they're constantly talking to each other about their own level of racism. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's so, it's authentic is what it is. It doesn't feel like it's being watered down for a mass market. It feels very authentic and at the same time, wildly not realistic. And, well, and that, in that way, it reminds me of the blackening because that yes. was talking very knowingly to a black audience, mm-hmm. but still inviting everyone else along for the party. Yeah. And, but they were they had their own things to say, and rightly so, and saying them in a smart way. But uh, if you know representation on the screen, I think will will mean a lot 
to a certain segment of the audience. And just talking about the cast real quickly, um, from Everything Everywhere All at oh, Once, yeah. Stephanie Sue, you'll see her. And for fans of Only Murders in the Building, like us, right. um, Ashley Park is in this as well, one of the, one of the four. Yes, well, she's the lead. Yeah. She is Audrey, and she's the go-getter. She's adopted by a white couple. And in a primarily white suburb, she has one Chinese-American friend, the, like the two, only two Asian kids in school and their best friends, because Lolo, played by Sherry Cola, who's hilarious. <laughs> she has another movie coming out, actually, in the next couple of weeks called Shortcomings. I'm very excited to see. Anyway, oh, yeah. she punches a kid in the throat on the <laughs> playground, and then they become best friends. And, they, and they're, you know, it's an odd couple pairing um, where Audrey is like the, you know, very ambitious and, and out to prove herself, everything she does. And Lolo is wildly not. She's absolutely not. And they're they're funny together. Um, and but all of the comedy is really quite funny. And then Deadeye, played by Sabrina Wu, is another really funny character, sort of the Zach Galifianakis of the team. Like the one who really isn't <laughs> yeah. supposed to be there, very yeah. much of a dork, just wants them all to be best friends, excited to be on a best friend adventure. And she's really funny too. It, it is a funny movie. Mm-hmm. The the comedy itself is stupid, escalating hijinks comedy. But Underneath of that, the the conversation that is being have being had is really really smart. And by the way, we only know that Ashley Park is in Only Murders in the Building because we've gotten an early look at some of right. the. You may not know that yet. Huh? Episodes from season three, huh? And uh, yeah, she joins up, and then Meryl Streep joins up, and Paul Rudd. If you're fans of Only Murders, you're going to like it, and it debuts next month. And we've gotten into the first three episodes so far. And there's a we, glitch in our screen. There's a glitch. Now, now yeah. come on, fix that glitch. But yeah, we enjoy that. Anyway, yeah, and it was funny. We didn't realize this morning on our TV gig, the, the hosts reminded us in talking about this movie how many times we kept saying raunchy. Oh, yeah. it's uh, We just want you to be warned, be warned. Because, man. And then somebody, when I called in the radio show this morning, somebody said inexplicably, oh, you mean like Porky's? No. No. Why no? Way, way, way. <laughs> Worse than Porky's? Uh, no, not at all. So, nope. as long as you go in with eyes open, and believe me, we we love a good uh, R-rated comedy. Come on in because I think you're going to find it funny in a way that's actually has something to say yeah. as well. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, bring it on. And that is Joyride in theaters now. Next is a comedy drama set in the not-too-distant future when the last two men on Earth must adapt and evolve to save humanity. It's called Biosphere. I'm going to find a way to keep us alive. I just need you to believe. There's goodness in change. Some people call it hope. I call it magic. Sometimes you can't explain all the magic in the world. Dude. What? Life finds a way. You didn't just quote Jurassic Park. (laughs) I was immediately interested in this movie because of the two men that we are talking about. In particular... Sterling K. Brown. Right. Mark, he's, he's so great in everything. He is. He is. Mark Duplass and Sterling K. Brown play the last men on Earth in this biosphere. Now, th- just a little bit of backstory. This was clearly a pandemic production. Yes. And, and you know, a lot of filmmakers, obviously like the rest of us, had to adapt during mm-hmm. the pandemic to still be creative. And one of, I thought, that the best movies that came out of that 
uh, Mark Duplass was involved in called Language Lessons. Oh, so good. You know, you see these movies. We saw a bunch of them during that time. Very limited cast, very limited settings, maybe one room, you know, maybe mm-hmm. one setting, and that's what you had to do. But you could still make some good movies. And Language Lessons was one that Mark Duplass uh, co-starred in, and he co-wrote with Natalie Morales, and that was either her first or second um, project as a feature director. Mm-hmm. Very good movie. Look it up. Language Lessons. Now we have Mark Duplass as a co-writer and co-star, and this time he's co-writing with Mel Eslin, and it is her debut as a feature director. So, very similar in that way. Unfortunately, it doesn't rise to the same level I think of of resonance that language lessons did, and it's tough to talk about because you really got to be careful in this movie what, what you, you say, give away, what you give away, and I don't even want to. There's something I want to say. I know ab- what it is about a movie, <laughs> <laughs> a movie tie-in. Yeah, a movie tie-in that I've brought up several times over the years, but I'm not even going to do that because that might lead you down a road that I don't want to go. Suffice to say that Mark Duplass plays. Billy, who used to be the president of the United States, mm-hmm. and Sterling K. Brown is his childhood friend, Ray, who was also his top aide as president. Also, very, very smart. He designed this biosphere when there was some sort of nuclear or something world-ending cataclysmic event, and you get the idea that maybe President Billy was to blame for that, right, maybe, right. because... It's clear the brains of this outfit is Ray, Sterling K. Brown, and Billy seems a lot like, well, like his middle initial should be W. Right. Uh, it's it's a lot there. So it leans on the two of these actors, and they're very good together. You get the feeling that maybe this was, from a director's standpoint, almost like an acting exercise. Mm-hmm. Probably gave them a lot of room. And they do a lot with it because you have to learn about the backstory through just their organic conversations. And they do... A very good job with that. And so here we are at the biosphere, and that's that's what their day is, and they try to get through, and they're still friends, and they've got this self-sustaining ecosystem going on, thanks to Ray. And then the last female fish in their pond dies, and instantly Ray knows that could really be a problem for the self-sufficiency, and that they could be looking at their days to be numbered. And then they have to try to figure the way out of that. And that's basically where I'm going to stop because it leads to a point that, to me, that where where the movie falters is when it takes this turn that it does, that could have been the ending of a really possibly good to great short film. But instead, they use it and, and they go on, and it's how you react to, to where this film goes, where it turns to me, it's just it, it paints itself into such a narrative corner that by the time it gets to the end, you feel like it's just a punt. And the first thing you see in the movie, there's a text on screen that says once upon a time. So that clues you in to the fact that maybe this is this is meant to be some sort of parable or fable to start a conversation about some very important issues and then and, and hope for the future and evolution and adaptability. And the end, you just what you're going to be talking about is what it how it gets there. Good try, good swing for the fences during probably a pandemic where they're trying to do these and, and stay creative. Ambitions are great. Just just for me, I think it, it really gets hung up on the on the corner that the narrative paints it into. And and again, it's really hard to talk anymore about it because I don't want to give anything away because it might work for you. 
It really might. Right. But uh, it's one of those that, boy, it's just it takes it takes such a chance with where it goes. And I certainly respect that, that it can fall one of two ways, but still a darn good try. You know, with some real talent involved, acting talent. And I think as a director, as a first-time director, this Mel Eslin does a good job of making the film look. It could have easily looked like a sitcom. It's right. one room. Yep. Yep. You know, it looks you know cinematic there's movement, enough. There's, there's movement, fluid. exactly. Yeah. And I also should mention, too, that there there's some nice humor in the screenplay. Like, like the fish are named Sam and Diane and Woody. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some wink-wink humor in the in the fact uh, that these two go back and forth and banter so that's all welcome as well but uh it's it really hinges on how you feel about the big choice that it makes and we'll leave it at that in theater is now called biosphere let's stay in theaters for a thriller a young author takes a tutoring position what did you mean i have a new novel and i was wondering if you might be on hand for the final stretch thought you might like to help We did all we could to save Felix, but it was too late. My husband was always hard to please. You're changing my work. I'm not. Who's the writer? This isn't about the writing. It was only ever about the writing, Liam. It's like nothing you've written before. But the ending, it feels like a different novel. Like it was written by someone else. Liam. Good writers borrow. Great writers steal. <laughs> well, this is one early on. If you didn't know, you you thought you were there for just a, a basic drama, and then it becomes, oh, yes, this is a thriller. Yeah, director Alice Trotton kind of, she she pulls you along, you know, in the way that ev- the the way that the scenes are filmed and the angles and the way that they move from one scene to the next. You start off feeling like you're watching sort of an art house family drama with these this big, elegant English estate and sort of this swamp that's out back and what that might portend and what this is symbolic of. And then um, as uh, as uh, Richard E. Grant's character Sinclair. He hires a tutor, actually his wife, played by Julie Delpy, hires a tutor to come and prepare their son to take his entrance exams for Oxford. But the longer you're at this estate with the tutor, played by Leo Grand. Daryl McCormick from, uh, yeah, good luck to you, Leo Grand. Very good. If you didn't see it, look it up. Yep. And uh, he, the tutor, he's a big, 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 big fan of the writer. In fact, that's what his that's what his senior thesis was on. Mm-hmm. And he's an aspiring novelist himself, of course. And so you think for a while, oh, he's got ulterior motives. There's something going on here. But it doesn't take very long for you to go, no, no, no. No, I think it's the family. And it's just really, it's really smart, savvy in the direction, in the way, you know, even though the story itself doesn't seem like it's telling you anything sinister, you're on the edge of your seat. You're like, no, something seriously is afoot. What is it? And it's very impressive the way the film builds tension. The performances are great. Richard E. Grant, I wouldn't say choose scenery, but it's a big, it's a big performance, yeah, yeah. big and toothy, and he's just a narcissist. Well, I think the character needs yes. that. Yes. Oh, exactly. No, he's perfect. He's great. and But also, because his is very sort of uh, attention-getting, mm-hmm. as the character would be, all of these quiet characters, Del- Delpy in particular, you're like, what is, is that mysterious or is that... Yeah. Sinister. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. It really the balance is there. It's a beautiful looking film as mm-hmm. well. I think, you know, if there's a downside, I would say that the climax is 
probably tidier than it ought to be. It feels a little bit. It just it doesn't it doesn't fit exactly with the sort of the tone of the rest of the movie. It just feels a little bit too tidy. But but that's it's a minor point, really, because it's it's a very, very solid which, which really sort of fits in with the plot of the movie, I guess. And uh, without <laughs> well, without saying too much, I but was the, thinking the same thing just as I said it. I'm like, oh, oh. but the writer is Alex McKeith of the feature screenplay feature a debut screenplay. And I love the line and I'm giving it I'm not giving anything away because it's in the trailer where uh, Richard E. Grant is telling the young man that that good writers borrow, great writers steal. Yep. Uh huh. Huh. That's <laughs> going to that's laying a groundwork for something, and it definitely does. So so yeah, a good a good solid thriller that start out starts out as a drama, and then yeah yeah you're right to think that there's maybe something else going on here. So it's in theaters now, and it is called The Lesson. And let's go to Netflix for a couple. First up, a documentary through archival interviews and footage. George Michael and Andrew Ritchie at the arc of their next thing you know. With wake me up before you go go. Wham Mania had arrived. It's Wham. Wake me up before you When I was with Andrew, we were absolutely determined to have a fantastic time. We were living in the moment. The success was so much more than I had ever dreamed of. And with your best mate. It was just absolutely magical. Wham! Career. 70s best buds to 80s pop icons in Wham! Oh, Wham! Who can forget Wham? And, (laughs) you know, when we were first talking about this, you found it curious that it didn't it was just about wham and not about George Michael. Yeah, because it seems as though, you know, the George Michael larger arc, right? Yeah. And and you know, starting off in wham and then moving on to a solo career and then everything that happened after that and his his very young and tragic death. Mm-hmm. It's and and his grappling publicly with with um homosexuality and and you know, it just seemed like that's the story, right? Yeah. Like it's like what well, this is the sort of the opening act. But it was a fascinating documentary. <laughs> it really t- told me a lot of things I didn't know. Yeah, me too. And I really was there. I mean, I was already in music radio, my first radio gig when they first came out, and I I didn't know. I do remember the song, at least one song before "Wake Me Up Before You Go Go." There was a song called "Young Guns," um, "Go for It," that. I, 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 <laughs> I not only remember the song, we didn't play it at the at the station I worked at, but we were I was aware of it. And I do remember MTV playing that video a little bit as well. What I didn't realize that this uh, documentary points out, how many hits they had in England before they hit it big over here. A lot. They were a big deal over in England before Wake Me Up Before You Go Go started, you know, wham mania over here. So that was one thing. And it gives you uh, some great Great footage and photos. I mean, early shots of George Michael. Wow. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You don't even know it's him. You have no idea it's him. You know, and great stories. It's able, clearly, uh, unfortunately, as you pointed out, George Michael died way too young. But he gave a lot of interviews, so they do a good job. The director is Chris Smith weaving s- some of the audio recordings in with more current interviews with Andrew Ridgely. And it creates a conversation mm-hmm. of great stories about them when they met and how they met. And and all, uh, it uses bits from all these scrapbooks that the family put together. I think by the time the movie's done, they're into their 30s, 40s, no, there 40s was, yeah. scrapbooks. Mm-hmm. And so and also we know about George Michael. I think unfairly and, and there's this uh, 
this uh, documentary sort of points out, Andrew Ridgely along the way has gotten that that reputation as just, boy, he was lucky yeah. to be George Michael's friend. Yeah. But I think this points out, and you can hear that George Michael say it in his own words, yeah. that in the early days, Andrew Ridgely was the driving force. Yeah, he was. And, and, George, and George Michael was the talent. Yeah, and George yeah. Michael was very clear about the fact that, no, I would not have been here without him because early on he gave me what I needed in my life to take that step. And then credit to Andrew Ridgely as well, when they were at the top and decided to go out, he seemed very accepting of the fact that, no, look, this guy's got the voice yep. and he writes the songs yep. and, of course, he's going to go yep. because look at him. And that's the way, and that's a perfect way to to approach it. And then, of course, another reason you, you learn another reason why George Michael probably felt that he had to to go is because, yeah, he was closeted mm-hmm. and felt that he that made him even more closeted. He was stuck inside this wham image. Mm-hmm. And I think though it, it was still a few more years before he really came out publicly. Honestly, yeah, it was it was quite a few more yeah. years before he really came yeah. out. Yeah, but even so, it is it's fascinating. It's only about an hour and a half or so, and uh, it was a. It's also a nice timestamp. Reminds you of those those early to mid '80s when, good lord, pop music was maybe at the highest point oh, yeah. that it's ever been. Yeah, really. Yeah. In terms of record sales, oh, yeah. and you know, Wham Mania was and was hair size, all the hair. <laughs> <laughs> and they comment they on that do. too. It's funny. <laughs> at one point in this old video of, oh my lord, the hair. So the Whamageddon yeah. video. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, that yeah, there all these people are around a dinner table and they're drinking, and at some points you can't even see faces. All you can see is hair. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's ch- check it out. It was enjoyable, and probably will show you some things, teach you some things that you didn't. No, even if you are a Wham fan, and that is Wham! Exclamation point. You got to say it like that. <laughs> Wham! <laughs> On Netflix now. Let's stay with Netflix for a horror thriller. Sarah Snook plays a fertility doctor who believes firmly in life and death, but after noticing the strange behavior of the guy. I don't understand what's going on. It's clear there's something troubling me. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> She's pretending to be Alice. I am Alice. Please, this isn't a game. You don't like me. Make me hide and hide. You're a nasty little thing. You're a good girl. Where's Leah? You're a good girl. You're a good girl. She must challenge her own values, confront a ghost from her past. It's called Run, Rabbit, Run. Sarah Snook, riding high from Succession, yes. just off the finale of Succession, which we didn't watch. We've heard it was fantastic. Right. And she's very good in this movie. She is. Very psychological thriller slash horror in the end. It didn't really completely work for us, but it's got some good things going on, it, going on in it. Not only her performance, but... The little girl who plays her daughter, her daughter Mia, Lily Latour. She's great. Very good. Yeah, she really is. Very good. Because she's asked to really sort of change personalities mm-hmm. and she does it with she does it subtly enough but she's unnerving. Yeah, no, she's she's really really good. She is. She's really good. So so credit to her. But uh, the director is Dana Reed. Writer is Hannah Kent, and it's it's a story of trauma uh, because this this woman that Sarah Snook plays, yeah, she's she's moved on. She's trying to to forget this 
painful event in her past. She's estranged from her mother. Her father has died. She's estranged from her mother, who's who's pretty much in an assisted living place mm-hmm. now. And there's memories of a sister who went missing years ago. And now, suddenly, her daughter, Mia, the young girl, is exhibiting weird behavior, which includes telling her mother that, no, she is Alice. She is the missing sister. And it's, you know, I, I do think that there is something, especially in the in the centerpiece of the film, it takes a while to get there, but films like this often do. There's It's kind of a slow boil yep, as you yep. see how happy the family is, and then you see it kind of fall apart, and that's that's a common structure. Um, uh, but I think there, and, but there are times where, you know, showing that a kid is being drawing scary, you know, that the teacher is worried because of the, what the kids are drawing. That is so worn out. That's so cliche that I was a little surprised to see it in this movie. Um, but, but I, I almost felt like in a way it was, uh, welcome because there's not, um, a real clear demarcation with a lot of the things. They don't really clarify a lot of specific sort of events that happen. And the thing is, there's a lot of events happening. There's a lot of sort of past that's opening up to you. And where you, while you do, at the end, you will absolutely understand the major through line. There are going to be points of it. You're like, what? Like, yeah. why? Especially when a certain scene will, will lead up to something that's very dramatic, something that maybe happens to the child, Something that you want to know, well, there will be some repercussions for that. What happened after? And then it just cuts Nothing. away cuts away to the next mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah. just, and just leaves us hanging. Like, yes. That just seems like, did you not know how to get out of this? And we just move on. Yeah. Um, there was two, one once maybe, exactly. but it happened so too just often. Thinking, yeah. It yeah. happened too often. It's kind of undercut the drama uh, of it for me. But I think, yeah, some good uh, performances here. I got to say also, though, the fact that she's a doctor and she's so confounded by certain injuries. Mm-hmm. Like, she's like, stop squeezing pus out of that. You're a doctor. Get some peroxide. And then there's there's another <laughs> choice that she makes about her child. Yeah, yeah. They go back to her, they, the, they go back to the mothers, the daughter, Sarah Snook's character. They go back to her childhood home. And the, there's something there, a choice that she makes. No. Yeah. No, n- n- that... All that has happened up to now, you wouldn't do that. No. So some of the internal logic is a little bit shaky, but but it, it, it's solid. It's not great. We were hoping for more. We, we, had, we I, yeah, I think yeah. we had higher expectations. Higher expectations yeah. for it, but uh, but good performances, especially the two, Sarah Snook and and the young girl, uh, Lily Latour. You know who she reminded me of the the child in Babadook because a lot of ways you're mad at her, yeah. you're, you're upset at her, but it's, you're supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, and a really good child performance there. And that is on Netflix now called Run, Rabbit, Run. Back to theaters for a drama. Cecilia travels to her father's farm after he has a heart attack. Back in her childhood home, Cecilia is met by her long-deceased mother, whose presence brings to life a painful past chorused by the natural world. Title is the cow who sang a song into the future. 
Well, this title intrigued me last week when we were talking about mm-hmm. the movies that were coming this week. And this was reviewed by Matt Weiner at MadWolf.com, and he was very impressed. Yeah, it's, uh, as you might guess from that description and from the title, it's it's a bit of magical realism, and it's it's really kind of a an ecological fable that's being told uh, the the deceased mother. She's been gone quite a long time when she returns and everybody else has aged and she has not. And the, it tells a story really about how we, you know, we're, we're destroying the planet and that's going to destroy us. Um, and, and that sounds heavy handed. And actually the film sometimes is a little bit heavy handed, but it doesn't matter so much because the performances are so good and because it's just so sort of lyrical and beautiful in the way that it focuses on one family and how one family grapples with the issues. So while it's not it's not perfect, it's absolutely worth finding. That is The Cow Who Sang a Song Into the Future in theaters now, and you can get the full review from Matt Wiener at madwolf.com. And one more. This one's on VOD on the edge of revolutionary change at their all-boys private high school. Three friends set out to have one last great weekend while dodging authority, love affairs, and violent foes in the longest weekend of their lives. It's called the Crusades. On Monday, we will be meeting with our brothers at St. Matthews to discuss and vote on the possibility of a merger between both schools. You better hope and pray that there is no merger. Those city boys are tough. They're bigger, stronger, faster. So, Brian? Hey, Tony. You gonna have sex at the social tomorrow? Can't do that. Gotta play it cool, because Miss Kerpeel is chaperoning. That explains why you never kissed a girl before. Always date older chicks. They're desperate. They'll do anything. Love knows no age. Man, that's art. Really, you can feel it right here. Oh! What was that for? Get it together, Leo. This will be our last weekend as owls. Let's go all out this weekend. Friday! Oh my god! Oh my god! See you guys Monday. See you Monday, bro. I was a little bit hopeful uh, when I saw. The trailer for this movie, I thought to myself, you're going to make this movie because how formulaic and done to One last death. weekend. I know, there's that synopsis. <laughs> I thought maybe they do something interesting and they they invert these these tropes and they... they uh, Christy Robb reviewed this one for us and she confirms they, in fact, just really embrace cliche. They just really lean hard into cliche. There are some funny moments in the film uh, about a bunch of dumbass adolescent boys being dumbass adolescent boys. <laughs> and uh, But there's just nothing fresh. They're just stupid, and they're doing stupid, sexist, ridiculous antics. And uh, sometimes they're funny, and sometimes they're not. But what they aren't is fresh or new. Yes, and uh, the co-writer and director, Leo Milano, and you can check out Christie's full review, uh, that she thought, yeah, a, a few funny moments, but all in all, what's what's the point here except right. more of the same old, same old? Uh, and that is at MadWolf.com. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Back in the lobby with Daniel Baldwin, a.k.a. the Schlocketeer, for the latest studio movie news and notes. What are you hearing? Well, the action thriller God is a Bullet will hit premium VOD on July 11th, and the Flash is streaking on the premium VOD on July 18th, and then Disney's The Little Mermaid will hit VOD on July 25th. Um, of course, those are all the premium ones, so they're yeah. probably going to be about 20 25 bucks a mm-hmm. pop, 
unless you want to wait for them to hit streaming in another month or two. Uh, Nickelodeon has a legacy sequel called Zoe 102 that is premiering on Paramount Plus on July 27th. And then Darren Aronofsky's The Whale is finally coming to streaming. It'll be on Paramount Plus on August 1st. Wow, it does seem like it's been a ways. It has yeah. been, yeah. Huh. I'm surprised it took that long, honestly. Yeah. Especially, especially with the, uh, he won the Oscar for it, didn't he? Yes, he, he did. did, yeah. He did. Yeah, that took forever. It did. Um, <laughs> Super Mario Brothers movie is hitting Peacock on August 3rd, so if you know anyone's missed that or they just want to, listen to Jack Black sing about peaches again. (laughs) Don't have to wait too much longer for that. Um, Amazon's premiering a rom-com called Red, White, and Royal Blue on August 11th. And then also on August 11th, there is the limited theatrical run for a documentary about Stephen King film adaptations called King on Screen. Uh, That'll hit theaters August 11th, and then it'll be on VOD on September 8th. Cool. And we've got another music doc this year. Um, on August 15th, Paramount Plus is premiering one called Reinventing Elvis, The 68 Comeback. Ah. Wrong. Centered entirely around that comeback special. It's a good one. That was one of the... <laughs> even you like... I mean, that was one of the highlights of the Boz Lerman Elvis movie when they did the, the Elvis uh, 68 mm-hmm. special. But that's that's a good one. I guess I'll be reviewing that. I think you will be. <laughs> Well, maybe you'll like this one, Hope, uh, or maybe not. Uh, the Adam Sandler comedy, You Are So Not Invited to My Bar Mitzvah, will premiere on Netflix on August 25th. <laughs> and then the last thing I have for you is Apple and Universal have set a February 2nd, 2024 release for Matthew Vaughn's new 1980s-style action epic, Argyle, uh, that'll hit theaters on that date and then stream on uh, Apple TV Plus about a month or two later, I guess. Apple and Universal are now in bed together for theatrical distribution. So is this the origin story for limo driver Argyle from Die Hard? We can only hope. (laughs) (laughs) I want that, and I want the Ellis origin story. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right, you can always check out the latest news from Daniel on the socials. You can find him at The Schlocketeer. Thanks, as always. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking ahead to next week, oh, a big one, and look, two hours and 43 minutes, a long one. (laughs) That's right, for the first half. The first half. That's right, for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. That's just Part 1, and also The Miracle Club is next week. Theater Camp. The League. Black Ice. Quicksand. And Once Upon a Time in Uganda. All right, we'll see that next week. But this week, Insidious, Joyride, Biosphere, wham, wham. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? Uh, We always love to keep the conversation going on Twitter. That's at Mad Wolf. Also, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and Threads now. Yeah, (laughs) We haven't done anything yet, but we're there. We haven't done anything, but it's uh, Mad Wolf Columbus all there. And, of course, the main website where you can find all of our written reviews and our other podcast, horror movie-only podcast called Fright Club. That's all there at madwolf.com. So have a great week. Enjoy the movies, and we'll talk again next week. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening... And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs>